What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Oh, my God. This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the two-man power trip podcast. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the prince of pro wrestling, and you are listening to two-man power trip. This is Jimmy Vine, the boogie Wooker man. Tell my people and my brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. So you said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind of show now. I mean, if you guys are in the privacy of your own home, if you want to do these things. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid, I, they knew they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. And I'm driving to my home in that overpriced hellhole, Connecticut. And I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to tell my wife and my two little girls that their daddy had just got fired. And so then, remember when, remember when McMahon got indicted? They needed somebody to come back and do raw. They called OJR. And then they let me go again. So finally they call me back, hired me back for 50 cents on the dollar to come back and work in the front office. Do you think that all these guys leaving the WWF was an accident? Hell no it's not! Do you think all these guys coming here was an accident? Absolutely not! I've been very busy. And right now, I want to bring back one of your favorites. He's the bad guy! Razor Ramon! What is JR trying to do? Is he trying to embarrass the World Wrestling Federation 
Brought to you today and powered by our good friends over at the IRW Network. Head on over to IRWNetwork.com right now and download episode number 12 of the Triple Thread Podcast featuring the franchise Shane Douglas, as well as John and myself, the two-man power trip of wrestling, as we chronicle the night Shane Douglas threw down the NWA Championship as part of of the NWA title tournament of August 27th, 1994. It is a can't-missed episode, and it is streaming right now over at irwnetwork.com, and that's run by our boss, Eric Bischoff, over at irwnetwork.com. And if you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, and as always, I am joined here on the two-man power trip of wrestling by my tag team partner, the one and only John Paz and Eric Bischoff, our boss over on IRW, is going to be brought up in this episode as we welcome in what you might know him as the imposter Razor Ramon or, quote, the fake Razor Ramon, or you may know him as Rick Titan, but it's Rick Bogner, the man who portrayed all those characters, joins the show today. And yes, I bring up Eric Bischoff because a huge part of this show is the discussion over the Razor Ramon character. And of course, and we can review it just for the purposes of uh, going through the history books. But when Scott Hall and Kevin Nash jumped to WCW and Eric Bischoff and company launched the NWO, Vince McMahon was forced to do something. And what he did was create two more characters in the WWE universe to portray the Razor Ramon and Diesel persona, One of them being Diesel was Glenn Jacobs. The other one being Rick Bogner, a.k.a. Rick Titan. We'll just call him Rick Titan from here. But Rick Titan took on the role of Razor Ramon, famously portrayed by Scott Hall. And a legal battle ensued between both companies, the WWF and WCW. But all the while, this big monster Rick Titan was donning the gold chains and the purple and the gold and the yellow and the green and all the colors and the attire and the look of Razor Ramon, famously played by Scott Hall. And that is going to be a huge part of the interview. And John's going to cover that here in a few minutes as well. But just talking about the man Rick Titan himself, what a great speaker, what a great guest, what a great commentator on different things, very motivational in the way he goes about kind of building things up and kind of giving you a straight uh, look into the grand picture and not just kind of singling in on one part of your life or your career. And in his world, that's wrestling, and he's obviously got more to it than just his time in professional wrestling. But it's just the fact that I think it's kind of ironic that Rick Titan never portrayed uh, a character that had a lot of gab behind him when he could really cut a good promo and he is a great talker. And one of the things I can say about this interview is that as we lead into next week's huge episode 300, that this was what I would like to think is one of my favorite interviews that we've conducted here in 2017 because he was so conversational and he was just so jovial and just so nice and so giving to us that it's just an amazing thing that we can now transfer over to you, the fans and the listeners 
of this show, and it's a great walk down memory lane. But as I welcome John in here, John, give us a little bit more background on Rick Titan. Tell us a couple more things that we have to look forward to, because this is definitely one for the ages as we welcome in a man who portrayed the bad guy, Razor Ramon. Yes, chatty boy, back with a vengeance here at the two-man power trip of wrestling. And like you said, what a great talker, what a great episode, what a great guest. The formerly known as WWF superstar Razor Ramon, obviously now known as Rick Titan. And you know you're so right on him and you kind of hit the nail right on the head with him. Man, you kind of didn't expect him to be such a great talker and such a great speaker, but hey... Guess what he does for a living now, and guess what he does with his job currently? He is a transformational speaker, a.k.a. motivational speaker, and he does a lot of great speaking engagements and different things. So please, you know, look him up, Rick Titan. Go check him out, whether it's on Facebook or go check it into the Google machine. Type in Rick Titan motivational or transformational speaker, and you'll get some great stuff on the former Razor Ramon. Now, notice how I'm not saying fake Razor. I'm not calling him the fake Razor because we talked about it in the interview. He, it's just kind of something that came along over the years. He wasn't really supposed to be known as the fake Razor Ramon, but it's kind of the name that has just been adopted with him being Razor Ramon and you know like there was obviously a fake Diesel you know the fake Sting or the bogus Sting and so on and so forth that always the name fake or bogus gets thrown in there in front of it but like he said he wasn't the fake he was just the guy playing Razor Ramon so I'm not really going to use the word fake and uh, you probably shouldn't either but I know it's probably in your vocabulary now and I know it's just something you're used to so we'll just call him formally known as Razor Ramon because obviously on that fateful day in 1996, you had him make his return to the F, if you will, to the WWF. And it wasn't really him. It wasn't Scott Hall. It wasn't the real original Razor Ramon. But rather, you know, Rick Titan, Rick Bogner playing the Razor Ramon character. And it was great to me, to be honest. And I know different people have different opinions on it. I absolutely loved JR in that heel role. So funny. February 11th, 1994, they fired my ass. Connecticut is an overpriced hellhole. I mean, all those great lines you got from Heel JR, so funny, so good, so right on point. He was awesome at that point. And I really did enjoy Fake Razor and Fake Diesel. Oh, excuse me, Razor Ramon and Diesel when they made their return or when the characters made their return to the WWF. So, I mean, I thought that was some great, great stuff. I know, Chad, you liked it as well. It was it was different. I mean, they weren't main eventers. They weren't doing what Scott Hall and Kevin Nash did with the Razor and Diesel character. But it was different. It was intriguing, and it was funny. And in the same aspect, it probably ended up helping WCW and Hall and Nash that Vince was kind of pulling out all stops and doing his own version of characters there and kind of having his own spin on it. So I think in the long run, maybe the Razor Ramon and Diesel character should have had different legs and maybe more legs to it because the characters that they were playing kind of helped out Hall and Nash saying that while these guys don't do those characters as well as Hall and Nash did well if Vince was smart enough at that point what I think he should have done I think he should have had them kind of change and 
you know, they could start off as Razor and Diesel, but make them their own Razor and Diesel and make them different and show, you know, showcase them in a different way because it's pretty funny they didn't have them speaking at all and it's crazy to see what they're doing now. Obviously, Rick is a motivational speaker and Kane, Glenn Kane at Jacobs, who was playing Diesel at that point, is now running for mayor. So, I mean, just listen to these guys talk. Great talkers. And the ironic part, of course, is that JR did most of the talking for them at that point. And they weren't doing the talking that they could have done and, and should have done. Because look at them now and look at the great talkers they are. So there was ways around the Razor and Diesel character where they definitely could have made it better. But, hey, I enjoyed it. I liked it. I loved it. It was some good stuff. But not only do we talk about the WWF run and kind of what he's doing today and, and, and different things like that, but we do talk about FMW. We do talk about ECW. We do talk about his time in Japan. We do talk about his favorite point in the business with New Japan Pro Wrestling. We definitely talk about his love of Japan, the culture, the wrestling, the style, the stiffness. We talk about all that in the interview. And, of course, we talk about Jinder Mahal. So if you fans out there didn't know, Rick actually ended up training Jinder Mahal, was his former trainer, and now obviously Jinder is doing big things in the WWE, and on SmackDown he is the WWE World Heavyweight Champion. So he came a long way, and we talk about his humble beginnings, and we talk about it now because Rick was hanging out with him a couple weeks ago at Jinder Mahal's brother's wedding. So you'll see the closeness that he has with Jinder and the closeness that he has with Jinder's family. So sit back relax and really really enjoy this one this was really really fun this was a lot of great stuff crammed into you know an hour and a half or whatever it was it actually probably could have been longer and we are looking forward to having rick on in the future to kind of continue the talk because he's such a great talker we want to have him back so many great stories so much info to cover awesome stuff from rick so like i said sit back relax enjoy Formerly known as Razor Ramon, now known as Rick Titan. Absolutely, and we want to thank Rick so much for coming on. Uh, it was a very cool scenario where we interviewed him. He was sitting in a Starbucks uh, the entire time we were talking to him. So I thought that was pretty cool that if you were in that Starbucks tonight that Rick Titan was interviewing with the two-man power trip, you got to hear a hell of a conversation, and I think that's what you're going to take away from this is he's a great talker. There's some great stories in here. And we really could have gone all night. And then something John and I were talking about off air, we didn't even bring up the fact that the fake Razor, sorry, I apologize, that Razor Ramon and Diesel feuded in the USWA when they were kind of cast off from the WWF in early 1997. And that's a whole world we didn't even get into. So you never know, maybe down the road, maybe we could almost have a summit between Rick and our good buddy Glenn Jacobs and maybe uh, have a little bit of a Diesel and Razor Ramon retrospective down the road. And uh, I think that's something that would be pretty cool. But, hey, you never know. As I've always said, you never know who's going to be on the other end of the line when it comes to this show. But uh, that would be something pretty, uh, pretty epic if you ask me. But, again, thank you so much to Rick Titan for coming on. Please go out of your way to look him up. He's going to give you all the places you can find him right now on social media. And, again, he is so much more than you are going to be expecting. And if you've heard any interviews with him, this is an hour and a half almost of, of just absolute gold. So stay tuned. Enjoy this episode. We are moving forward to episode number 300. This is episode number 298. We have such a gigantic guest for 300 lined up and recorded that we cannot wait to present this next Friday. 
It's going to be unbelievable, and I really am just um, so pumped to get it out there. Uh, no spoilers, no hints. This is going to be a you get to your download box on Friday morning, and you are going to see who episode 300 is. That's two episodes away. And please, as you know, this episode is sponsored by Eric Bischoff's IRW Network, and we really want everybody listening to go to IRWNetwork.com and stream episode number 12 of our Triple Threat podcast that covers the entire NWA title tournament where Shane Douglas threw down the NWA title. We covered every single aspect of that day from the events leading up to it to the aftermath when the the sheets got a hold of this information, when the fans started to circulate the tapes, when everybody found out what Shane Douglas did in Philadelphia that night, we cover every single thing in between those two moments, and it is one for the ages. It's two hours of audio gold, and it's sitting over there waiting for you at irwnetwork.com. So please support us over there. And if you're listening to us right now, get ready for episode number 300. And John, let's get this bad boy on the road and hit him with a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business and get it on over to Rick Titan. Now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Wrestling Pal. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Also, while on iTunes, check out the feed for prior legendary episodes featuring the living legend Bruno Sammartino, the late great American Dream Dusty Rose, the Enforcer Arn Anderson, Ray Mysterio Jr., Glenn Kane Jacobs, the phenomenal AJ Styles, lead WWE attorney Jerry McDivitt, and so many others. Also, while you're on the internet, Check out ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. They are your superstore for all your wrestling t-shirt needs. Check out our page. Check out Tito Santana, Coco Beware, Kevin Thorne, Buff Bagwell, Magnum TA, and so many others. Also, while you're on the web, check out our website, TMPTOfWrestling.com. And if you're on Android, please check us out on Google Play or Player FM. Follow along with a two-man power trip in 2017 as we come to a town near you. TMPT hits the road. September 9th, the Subway one-year anniversary in Keensburg, New Jersey with the hardcore icon Tommy Dreamer. October 21st, we hit the Legends of the Ring in New Jersey. November 4th, we hit the big event in New York City. And the big one, the granddaddy of them all, the big guy... Wrestlecade in North Carolina on 11:25 with Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard. There will be a Four Horsemen reunion for sure. So follow along with the two-man power trip as you never know where we may land. And now, without any further ado formerly known as WWF Superstar Razor Ramon. He is a former FMW World Champion, a former FMW Tag Team Champion. You may know him as the Big Titan or Rick Bogner. He is Rick Titan. Please enjoy.
joining us on the line tonight is a man you might remember by a couple different names in professional wrestling. You may remember him as Rick Titan, Big Titan, the fake Razor Ramon, or you might remember this man as how we first learned his name. His name is Rick Bogner, and we want to welcome you tonight to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Hi, guys. How you doing? Thanks very much. Hey, I prefer the second razor rather than the fake razor, but that's okay. You know, there are a lot of Batman characters, and that's sort of where I was coming from. When uh, when Vince came up with the idea, I thought, well, Val Kilmer has done the role. Uh, George Clooney has done the role. We've had uh, Michael Keaton do the role. So it's, uh, at the time, it seemed like, well, hopefully we'll be able to pull something like that off with the Razor Ramon character. But uh, especially in New York, it didn't turn out that way. Got a lot of booze out there, but funny enough, on the West Coast in the San Diego area, California area, uh, a lot of the fans really love the Hispanic character, and of course, they're they're Latino speaking, they're Spanish speaking, and uh, I got a, quite a few cheers out there, which actually blew me away at the time. But all in all, it was a fun experience. Oh, absolutely! And see, usually I do have a little bit more of a drawn-out introduction, but. That was actually the first question that I had on the docket was having to use the word fake in front of a professional wrestling gimmick name. So that's kind of the ironic part. And we're going to dive into that without a doubt. And I'm, I'm really happy that you shared that right off the bat. But i got to tell you something. We are so incredibly pumped to speak with you because we feel as if the, there's, there's more of a story behind you that needs to get out there than just knowing about the fake Razor or Rick Titan or, or, or Big Titan. And we, this is why this is going to be a fun conversation here. So with all that being said, as we get rolling here, why don't you tell the listeners of the Two Man Power Trip what you're doing with your motivational speaking and kind of what you've been up to since you left the wrestling business? Well, it's kind of funny. A lot of people watch wrestling or, or any kind of sports or, or uh, singers, entertainers, actors, and they think it's all just going to be a big barrel of fun. But uh, especially in more of a hardcore sports-type atmosphere, I say sports-type because you mentioned fake earlier. And, yeah, I mean, anybody who reads any kind of papers on it or, or has been in a real fight in their life before done martial arts can tell that what's happening in the ring isn't completely legit. But there's no faking pressing a 300-pound man over your head and uh, no faking getting a steel chair shot. So there, there are a lot of things in it that we took, and it was really difficult to do. But at, by the end of that, um, I found that we had a lot of camaraderie in locally here in Calgary and Canada. The guys were a lot of fun, and we were very supportive of one another. And in Japan, it seemed to be mostly that way, too. You get the, the, the odd bad egg. And, um, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't mean to talk badly about Americans at all because I love lots of American people. And uh, I think you guys are doing something amazing for the whole world, especially with what's going on with the North Korea right now. Uh, Canada certainly couldn't back that up. So, <laughs> um, But I found that getting into the WWE, the guys, and, you know, you're talking the cream of the crop, the top-level guys, it gets super competitive, and that's the reasoning. It's not because the guys are American at all. Um, there are lots of rude Canadians, believe me. <laughs> but... Uh, the the guys always wanted to knock you off the ladder, you know, and, and there was always heavy competition at the, those extreme levels. And and to mention that, actually, New Japan Pro Wrestling was like that a little bit in certain cases, too. So um, just when you're really at the, at the top levels, the guys are climbing that ladder. They want to kick you off. They see it as very competitive, especially if you're in the 
similar height range, uh, muscularity range, uh, weight range, physical ability range, charisma range, all those things. So I've had some guys pull some pretty nasty ribs on me before, and uh, and just the verbal stuff that went back and forth. It was it was childish, you know. And so by the time I got out of the the business, actually probably by the time I got into WWE, and Barry Windham used to always say this to me. He was a great guy. I traveled with him a lot. The Widowmaker. Uh, former world champion and uh, one of the four horsemen he used to say, Rick, this business will jade you. And I was thinking, what's he talking about? You know, I'm having a great time and, and I don't get it. And, uh, and sure enough, within a few months of that, I'm like, okay, I get it. <laughs> this business will jade you, you know, it'll turn you dark inside sometimes. And it makes you put a big block up. And when fans aren't treating you properly, when they're not respecting your athletic ability or your acting ability, uh, I think I pulled off the accent pretty good in the Razor Ramon character. And I think that uh, as far as being, well, I mean, I was a power lifter too, so quite a bit stronger than Scott Hall. He was, he was a better psychological wrestler, definitely. But uh, I was benching four and a half plates and squatting five plates at a time. I'm sure he wasn't even close to that. So some of the feats of strength I did in the ring were, were well, let's just say I did them really well. And I think I should have gotten a little more respect for that. But um so by the time I got out of it, from some of the ribbing in the locker room, it wasn't a ton, but more just verbal crap. And then the fans kind of pissing on the character and being rude. And even in Japan, you finish a matchup, and they've seen you do a bunch of karate kicks and chops. You're carrying two heavy, heavy bags for a month-long tour back to the tour bus, and they're chopping you across the chest, you know, real stiff. And... uh it's just a weird mentality. So when I got out of that, I kind of had to adjust to normal life, real life again, and uh, sort of a nine to five job where nobody would dare touch you. You know, people wouldn't insult you. They, they just talk to you. And it was um, quite, it was a shell shocker. It was a culture shock for sure. And the fact that I'd spent probably, you know, half my life over those 10 years over in Japan, it was a totally different mentality. Um, and I started to go, geez, you know what? I'm still kind of mean spirited here sometimes because I had to be to make it in that business. If you're soft and if you're, uh, let people walk all over you, then you're just not going to make it. That's just the way it is. And it's kind of sad, but true. And I started realizing from getting other friends and different businesses, how kind hearted people could be. And then I was still pretty rough around the edges and then dating some girls while being out of that business, you know, I'd. I hate to say it too, but being a professional wrestler in your 20s, having long hair and being 300 pounds doesn't necessarily attract the most uh, kind-hearted and attractive women either. They're usually a little bit tough themselves. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there's there's my little rant about the negativities of it. Of course, there were lots of really great sides too. We can talk about that in a bit, but it made me start to do some real soul searching. I thought, geez, you know what? I'm a pretty mean guy sometimes. I'm pretty tough. I'm pretty rough around the edges. I don't trust people in general um, at the age of 29, right? And um, 29, 30. And, uh, and it was just a really hard go. And I, I was angry with myself and I was pent up, stressed out, wired, ready to fight at the drop of a pin. By the way, between Japanese tours, I was also bouncing in bars. So what you see is a guy throws a, a glass across a bar at his ex-girlfriend that dumped him cuts her a six inch slice in her face and then you have to deal with them, it, it, you know, just sour stuff like that. And, um, I wasn't in a good place. I wasn't in a happy place. And I also lost kind of the love of my life. I always said at that age, 
that I love pro wrestling more than I could ever love any woman. And I think you, you in a way, have to be that committed, that dedicated, and love the business that much to put up with the pain, all the travel, the loneliness, all that stuff that goes along with it. And um, then I thought, well, I've got to start. I know how to psych up. I know how to get really angry. I know how to bench press incredible amounts of weight and get mind-blowingly crazed for that. I know how to get psyched up and bang my head off a locker and, and go to a ring and take steel chair shots over the back and over the head, which, you know, you look out there in society, how many people can do that? <laughs> how many people can willy, willingly walk into a room and, and expect to take steel chairs over the head and over the back? I, I bet if you ask 20 to 100 people, you might get one uh, crazy enough to say, yes, I could do that, right? So that's a unique individual in itself. But uh, yeah, so I started reading Taoism. I started reading on uh, Hinduism. I started reading on um, some yoga philosophies, the eight limbs of yoga, which is much different than the exercise of yoga. The exercise in itself, the classes are only one of the eight limbs. The other is philosophy and psychology. And uh, studied with a Buddhist monk for about four years. So originally, I just... Um, really wanted to change myself. I really wanted to be a happy person. I wasn't very happy inside, stressed out, frustrated, uh, edgy, irritable all the time. And I just wanted to find a way to change that. So originally it was kind of a selfish thing. And then after a little while, um, I started wanting to share it with other people because I thought there, I saw that even though they had a normal lifestyle, a lot of them were in a similar place to where I was. They weren't very happy. So that's kind of the the rant in the nutshell, the whole thing right after wrestling. <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you what, I mean, it, you're, you're a natural talker and it's kind of funny when you think about <laughs> that race character, you know, you had to say five words, maybe total, you know, there was a couple of problems you guys had, but you know, you would think the debut yeah. when you came out, they would, they would give you the mic and let you fly. Cause you might talk better than Scott Hall does, but Thank I you. Tell you yeah. yeah. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, your story is phenomenal, and just in reading about it and kind of the, the little bit of press that you've done uh, over the last couple of years, just learning about all the the great things you've done after wrestling is pretty cool. But one thing we got to tell the fans as well is the connection that you still do have to professional wrestling through somebody who trained under you, who's currently the WWE uh, SmackDown champion, and that is Jinder Mahal. So if you can, kind of walk the fans through. Uh, how you're associated to gender in that way, and uh, can you believe he is uh, the WWE SmackDown World Champion as we speak? Yeah, you know it's it's amazing. I was uh, I was even shocked when I heard about it, and I saw a bunch of things on social media because I do a lot of work on social media, uh, coaching people on stress and kind of walking them through setting up some videos on how to de-stress and how to get fired up, like fired up in the sense of getting psyched up to. Uh, either do a really heavy lift or go to the ring or even do a big presentation in front of a bunch of CEOs. And um, so I'm, I'm just flicking through some of this stuff. And I thought it was a rib at first because, and then I didn't mean that. I don't mean that in a way that I didn't literally believe it. It just happened so quickly. And I thought, you know how sometimes these rumors get, get out there and somebody's actually ripping on somebody and, and he is East Indian. And sometimes the uh, East Indian guys take a ribbing about things, but yeah, true enough. Uh, I did a little more research on there, and I think I even got a, a couple of voicemails that I didn't have my volume on on my phone, and my buddies were going, can you believe it, man, the guy that you trained is now the world heavyweight champion? And I said, oh, wow, that's absolutely amazing. It's phenomenal, man. And 
I trained, his real name is Raj, and I trained him when he was about 15, 16 years old. And I was the first guy to train him. And then I was training guys alongside with Bad News Brown, Bad News Allen. And, uh, man, he really knew how to train guys. I, I have to say that a lot of my training ability came with him because he trained in the New Japan Dojo, which is one of the toughest places you can train. And even here, we didn't train guys as hard as that because there they would make them do you know, 500 free squats and 500 push-ups and, and uh, just work the hell out of them. But um, I learned a lot from Bad News on how to train guys too because I had this sort of elitist attitude. Uh, I would start to train a guy like a football player and I'm trying to teach him to do a forward bump and all he can do is he can't even do a somersault. I mean, I would have to push his legs over in a somersault and I'm shaking my head going, you want to be a professional wrestler, man, and you can't even do a freaking somersault, please. But... Uh, you know what? The guy trained up, and now he's professional wrestling locally, so good for him. But anyway, um, Raj, even at 15, 16 years of age, he had this hard frown and this focus and this determination in there that uh, I don't think I'd seen with any other guy that I trained. I was, I was training a lot of teenagers and adults at the time, and um, even the adults just didn't have the grit, you know, and then we'd tell somebody to chop them, and he'd just stand there and take it with a little bit of a snarl on his lip. And, uh, you know, most 15-year-old kids, man, they'd fold under stuff like that. They, they'd just give up, never come back, or they'd run away crying or something like that. Raj could take everything the adult could, adults could take and more. He just had this steely tooth determination, man. And uh, I, I always said after about a couple of years of training guys, I said uh, – I could point out that guy's going to make it. That guy's not going to make it. That guy to what level? I don't know, but we had a girl, Charlotte, man, she could take a chop. She could take a kick and she made it down in Mexico and over in England. And I knew she was going to make it just because no matter what you asked her she, to do, she'd just go, yeah, okay. And just do it. And you're like, holy crap, man. <laughs> and, uh, another guy named Chris fluke, he went down to Ohio Valley wrestling for a while and did a lot of local stuff. And just because of his sheer guts, and I think that's what it is a lot of times, is sheer guts, you know, because wrestling training is hard. Even though people think it's fake, uh, all the bumps and jumps you have to go through, all the whiplash on the neck you have to take, all the stiff kicks and chops and everything, if you have a good hard trainer, just to get through uh, being trained, I'd say 90% of the people just quit and give up. They just they just can't take it, you know. And... Um, he he could just take everything, and he had, I don't know if it was a real glowing charisma about him, but he had this, this certain something, this quality about him, where he was just solid as a rock in that ring, and you could see it, nobody else had that quality. And I think it's kind of similar to today, I don't know if you'd agree or not. I would definitely, I would agree in some way, uh, shape, or form, there's definitely, uh, there's some similarities to say the least, but... You know, with a guy like Jinder, the common thing that I can kind of relate to what you've done in your, uh, your career as well is the, uh, the bodybuilding, you know, and the powerlifting. And mm. Jinder is in, like, this amazing shape now. I know. Whereas when he yeah. was released about, you know, two years ago, not that he yeah. went off into obscurity, but he did go the indie route. And it kind of, yeah. if you had pulled ten wrestling fans, you never would have thought Jinder would have come back uh, to the WWE, and obviously what he's done has been unbelievable. But how about the shape that he's gotten in? Does that impress you as well as as much as his work ethic for getting into the business and what he's done in it? I, I would have to say, and um, I didn't say this to him. I saw him a couple of weeks ago. 
but maybe I, I would have liked to have said it and it kind of popped into my head afterwards. With the abs, the serratus, the thick pecs, the thick wide shoulders, man, the V-shape he's got, the legs that are just sticking out from that tiny waist of his, I'd say he's in better shape than I was in in my best shape. And um, maybe there's one point when I was in FMW when I was really ripped and had a tiny waist and I was squatting, you know, quite a few hundred pounds and I was really at my physical peak. But, man, he uh, he's in just absolutely ripped, massive, phenomenal shape. And, and it is. You're, my, you're right. It's mind-blowing because he looked like sort of the average steady guy in a gym that had been going for a few years. You know, he had some big arms and, and um, it was pretty thick. Not a lot of definition. But uh, next thing I know, I see this guy. He looks like a ripped bodybuilder, uh, shaved off all his chest hair and abs poking out like little bricks. And I was like, holy crap, man, what, what a transformation. I mean, he doesn't even look like the same person. Even in the face, he had sort of a, just a regular, smooth, roundish kind of a face. And then I saw him at this wedding, and his cheeks were just indented right in, cheekbones poking out, you know, jawbone poking out. I was like, man, this guy's in amazing shape. I uh, I grabbed him by the arm to say, hey, let's stand over here and take a photo. His freaking arms are like, they were like boulders, like river rock, man. Holy crap. <laughs> this guy is unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, I give him a lot of credit for that, and that was all his own. And obviously, you know, everybody's heard the stories about uh, the chairman, Vince McMahon, and, and his uh, affection towards the bigger guys, the physique guys, and obviously you and Jinder are about the same size. Uh, with that same background of putting in that time, do you see Vince as gravitating towards somebody like Jinder based off of your experience in the company? Well, I think it's, you know, everything goes in waves and cycles. And uh, if you look back and say you're just to rent some DVDs or get something online and you go back to a Bruno San Martino, which was sort of just the pudgy Italian and uh, man, I, I mean, it, Maybe it's just gullibility and people were more innocent back then, but to me his stuff looked as fake as fake gets. It was big round circles for punches and these big wound-up kicks that he just let them sit on the guy's chest for about a half a second. And uh, I, I took martial arts. I got a martial arts background, karate, judo, got a black belt. Um, watching that stuff to me was like, oh, my God, this is so cheesy and fake. And then the next thing you know, you get into the 70s and the guys are getting more powerlifting looking. Uh, even like some of uh, Bill Kazmaier types and things like that. And, and uh, then you get your Hulk Hogan's and then your Ultimate Warriors, who is probably one of the peak physical shape. But I have to say, just vision-wise, uh, that Jinder looks, you know, not too far off the Ultimate Warrior, man. He's, you know, he's in peak, peak shape. But for a while, because of all the, the drug issues and the guys dropping like flies, like I've got, I could tell you probably 20 names of guys that I've been on the road with that are all dead now um, and all the drug testing and everything that the WWE is doing that um, I think that that, that wave is kind of past that they're, they're probably not looking at all the court injunctions and the trouble and the people making judgments and, Oh, that guy's on steroids, you know, uh, all that kind of stuff anymore because it's just uh, that that wave is past. So I think now, they, and, you know, even I have to say 10 years ago, watching a lot of these guys, even like CM Punk going to the ring, no offense to him or anything, but if people are paying $200 for a ticket and they're a guy my size and I'm only about 
230, 240 right now. And I watch a guy like that walk to the ring or, or most of the other guys at the time who are becoming very good talkers, but I don't think we're very strong or legit tough. Um, and I'm, I paid 200 bucks for a ticket, and I go, oh, I could take that guy. Oh, I could take that guy. Well, then where's the value in that $200? Now you're going back to guys like Jinder who, holy crap, I wouldn't want to meet him in a dark alley, right? <laughs> oh my God. So that's kind of the direction, I think. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, 10 years ago, you look at pr- probably 80, 90% of the guys, and you're like, yeah, I'd fight him. No big deal. So big, big changes. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. With the, you know, the changes are, are seen without a doubt. And that little sabbatical that he had was definitely uh, a huge help to him. But has mm. he ever reached out to you in between? You know, but, uh, maybe when you guys first came in contact and uh, during maybe his days uh, release, did you guys have any contact before running into each other at this wedding? You know, not really. Um, it, and again, when I say some of these things, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, and I don't mean them to sound bad or anything, but uh, when, when you're in WWE, and I did this myself, you don't really reach out to a lot of people who aren't in your clique anymore. Um, I know I had guys that were in smaller leagues and they reached out and they phoned me when I was there. And typically I was thinking that nah, they're just phoning me for a job. So I'm not going to call them back, man, because I didn't have any pull to getting one of the job. I was scraping, just barely holding on to my own. Right. Um, but you know, it's a very elite uh, or elitist kind of an attitude. And I didn't try too, too hard to get in touch with them, but, um, I think I tried once or twice and he didn't get back to me and, you know, there's a lot of focus, a lot of determination that goes into that. And if you're starting to slip, where I knew I was with the Razor Ramon character, I knew when my contract was going to be up after that year that they probably weren't going to renew me. And I wasn't in a real happy place. So I was thinking, oh, my God, what am I going to do now? And, you know, if I had a trainer that I could have talked to at that time, I wouldn't have reached out and said, yeah, God, I, I think my career's just about over here and I don't know what to do. And I talked to his dad uh, briefly, and his dad's probably about, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 years older than me, but somehow we just kept in touch, uh, either by Facebook and then sometimes by phone. And I uh, went and had some great East Indian food together. And he said, yeah, Raj isn't you know, really happy right now. He doesn't know what to do. And I said, well, tell him you can call me anytime. I've been through it. And it is tough. And I, and I think there should be some kind of coaching or some kind of psychologist something to reach out to for the guys in any sport for that matter. And I think they do have it in football and hockey quite a bit to where when you're, when you're done with that, with that business, it's like your whole life is caving in and not to mention that, but you're making a lot of money and then all of a sudden you're not making almost any money anymore. That's tough. And, uh, uh, but regardless to say, no, we didn't keep, keep in a lot of touch, but you know, it was really great to see him on the upside and as world champion uh, at his brother's wedding there and, and we chatted a bit, but, um, you know, there's also a, sort of a tough-as-nails edge you have to have to be one of the top guys to be a world heavyweight champion, and you don't go around expressing your feelings a lot. <laughs> That's just the way it is. And, uh, you know, him and I had some, some nice little chats, but there was nothing really deep going on, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, definitely. But yeah. If I could just change the topic a little bit and kind of just mm-hmm. focus more on you for a second, because I know we're talking about gender, and obviously you played a major role in kind of where he is now, but 
Let's go back to you and kind of where you hit it big and where you hit your stride and, and how you got to where you got when you got picked up by FMW and you're working with Onita. How did you actually get into the Japan scene? Like, how did you make that connection? Well, there was a guy named Ricky Fuji. He was out here in Stampede Wrestling quite a bit, and I think he did the uh, the Tiger Mask character. And funny enough, Calgarians really thought he was Tiger Mask. It wasn't like when I did the Razor Ramon thing. And uh, he got a pretty good name for himself out here. Then when he went back to Japan, I think his goal was New Japan Pro Wrestling. And I believe that Atsushi Onita, the promoter and, and usually the champion, 90% of the time anyways, um, had worked for New Japan and went off and branched off and did his own type of uh, street fight wrestling. You know, and, and all the rag mags at the time were calling it garbage wrestling. But the funny thing is that, that these uh, these... These, these old laundry wearing bloggers or these guys writing these sheets in their, in their nightgowns and stuff like that. Armchair athletes had no idea what it took to get in there and have a, a world champion judo Olympic medalist drag your ass to the mat from eight feet in the air at a hundred miles an hour and then hit you with a, a big table. You know, they call it garbage wrestling all the time, but you know, once again, you take the average person or even one of the toughest people you know, and they couldn't handle it. They just couldn't. They'd, they'd crush into the first first drag down to the mat or the first table shot, right? Um, so for Ricky was in there, pretty good with Onita, and then a fellow in town here who had been his friend uh, sent some, at the time, videotapes over to Japan, and they liked what they saw in me. They already had Mike Awesome over there who had a you know fairly similar style, and they had Horace Boulder, Hulk Hogan's nephew, Mark Starr from Florida, who is a pretty good name in Florida. Um, and these other guys from other countries who are shooters. And um, most of these shooters knew how to how to do a work pretty good. But, you know, it was stiff at times, and, and we got knuckled pretty hard or dragged down to the mat pretty damn fast sometimes, but we just sucked it up, right? Um, so that's that's what happened. I was 21 years old when I first went over there. Amazing to think of FMW and their influence on American wrestling with ECW and things like that. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty amazing to kind of them go from garbage to FMW being remembered so well that when Onita was over here a few weeks ago, you know, it was, it was a big deal. Like, oh, my God, even given his age, you know, oh, my God, he's back mm-hmm. in the States. And they made a big thing that Onita, you know, former F- uh, FMW legend, was in the States. So isn't that yeah. kind of uh, a little, little ironic? You know, it, it wasn't so much garbage with wrestling uh, now we looking back at all yeah well i mean let's face it if there had been no fmw and none of the steel chairs the tables the barbed wire matches the bomb matches all the different gimmick matches say they never existed then i feel quite strongly that ecw never would have existed either where would they have taken that stuff from and uh, they happened because yeah they happened because uh these guys over in the States were watching videos of, of stuff in Japan like that. Uh, and Paulie was watching them. And then he'd hire somebody like Sabu who'd be flipping, crashing through tables every night, sacrificing his body again. Um, you know, and I, I truly believe that if FMW hadn't have been there, ECW wouldn't have been there. And that was quite a revolutionary thing for the U.S. I mean, it, it, it just screamed, man. It, it got lots of attention and, and all these other tiny promotions, all these other independent promotions 
going into business, going out of business and failing one after another, after another, I'd say not even dozens, but maybe hundreds over those few years. And ECW was the one that had a huge impact, right? Definitely true. And you did have a few brief appearances in ECW. Was that because you're from FMW? That's why they kind of wanted to bring you in? Yeah. Um, I don't know that, you know, again, it was in Philadelphia. So people were, uh, they, they, I think they want to test you when you first come in. And um, if you're Canadian, that's another thing. They ride your ass about a little bit in there in Philadelphia. Um, so I wasn't really perceived with the, the greatest recognition when I first came in there. And because, you know, it was a day and age of barely internet and uh, just a few people here and there had seen actual videotapes of me that were sent over with FMW stuff. Um, had a couple good matches and uh, had one with Sabu, which I think was a, a phenomenal match. The psychology and the ups and downs and the, the super heavyweight power guy versus the guy who could do backflips off my chest. You know, literally, I would shoot him up to do a, a backdrop and then he'd do a drop kick off my chest or he'd do a backflip planting both feet off my chest because I could stand my ground and he had a firm planting for him to do his flip from, right? I mean, it was just, it was crazy stuff. It was really cool. And, um, but then I had one match with, uh, with the Dudley brothers and I was backstage with Paulie and Paulie says, okay, man, here's what I want you to do with the six man tag. And I personally, I've never liked six man tags to start with. It's very difficult to shine on your own. Uh, usually they end up as a cluster and a mess. Um, and when, fans are trying to watch this guy, that guy, and the other guy, well, two guys each, uh, all at once, you know, you, you, nobody really gets a chance to shine that brightly unless they're already a big, big superstar, you know? But, uh, I said, you know, my razor Ramon, uh, cause I imitated a lot of guys just having fun, the whole Colgan macho man, things like that. And I said, what the hell do you want me to do, man? And <laughs> Scott, or, uh, I, Paulie says, oh, my God, oh, my God, can you do that out there? And he's tripping out. And I'm like, uh-oh, maybe I got myself in a bad position here. But they were doing stuff like uh, the Blue Meanie as Shawn Michaels and uh, Stevie Richards as Diesel. And they were doing a lot of parodies out there, which were really hot with the fans. They really loved it. So I talked to, I think, Sabu and uh, Chris Benoit were there at the time. And... Uh, I don't mean to bring up bad bad news or, or sad situations there or anything, but you know Chris was always cool to me, and it's very sad what happened. But at the time, it was just like another one of the guys, and I said, "What do you think? Should I do this or, or you know?" And they both said, "Well, you never know, man. It might lead somewhere, and you might get a regular spot in the U.S., which I'd been wanting to do for a while as uh, one of these parody guys, and you might get over real big." So I thought, "Okay, I'll do it." So. I went out there and did the Razor Ramon thing, and I pulled a curl down my, my head, and I actually had stubble grown in because uh, at the time, the goatee was the hot thing. Like, everybody and their dog in ECW had a goatee, and I usually wore one in Japan, but this time I thought, well, I don't want to look like everybody else, so I grew in full stubble. And my hair was pretty dark and, and put the toothpick in and played the role and everything, and the fans popped as soon as I took the mic. Um they had a blast with it. But from there, the Dudley brothers sort of saw me as the new guy. And I think I was partnered up with somebody, a couple guys that weren't really popular. And uh, 
they just figured this is our territory, this is our ground. We're gonna we're gonna try and squash these guys, or you know, just take ninety percent of the match or something like that. And quickly it, it turned into not what we had called in the back, but into just a mess. And uh, but at that time, one of the WWE uh, referees I heard, who was also one of the bookers or help book, had seen me do this character, and he thought it was great, and he told Vince about it. Uh, I'd been hanging out with Brett Hart a bit in Calgary, and Brett got me a tryout as Rick Titan, and that went quite well as a as a real vicious heel. But then uh, Vince called me up a couple weeks later and says, "Yeah, the people want Razor Ramon back, and I own the trademark, the copyright, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and, and uh, I want you to be my new Razor Ramon." And it, you know, it was mixed emotions. I was excited to get into the WWE. That would have been is a 10-year goal for me by that time, and I'd finally gotten an opportunity to do it, and I thought, if I say no to this, I may never get in there. He might be spited because of it, and that's it for me in the U.S. So uh, I said yes to it, and I asked him, you know, well, can we transform it into something else? Can we evolve it into something else? Maybe change the character name a bit, or maybe put long pants on and, and be more of a, an Antonio Banderas Mexican-type character and, and maybe make it a little more evil or something. I was trying to think of other ways where I could make it my own character because I had a pretty good feeling that people were going to reject it. And then Scott and Kevin went over to WCW. And, you know, funny thing is, if they had gone over there and then Scott Hall had just turned into the Diamond Stud again or just Scott Hall and had only gotten over as big as he had been in WCW before, then um, it wouldn't have been as bad. But... But him and Kevin went in there and created the NWO with Hulk Hogan, and it was probably the biggest impact in professional wrestling of all time, right? So then I was really – Oh, yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was fun. It was fun. It was decent money, and I can say I've been there, and um, those are all the good sides to it. So interesting how something small can turn into something big like that. So when – Vince approaches you, you know, you're playing the Grazer Ramon character and, and they're going to kind of tell you how to, how you're going to debut and things like that. Jim Cornette has this famous story where he basically is teaching you guys how to be Hall and Nash. What is, what is the, the true story of that? Do they kind of take you and try to show you video of them or how did that all work out? Yeah. What happened was they'd sent me videotapes in Calgary of all the vignettes that Scott had done when he first started talking as Razor Ramon in the cheesy clothes and the big, uh, you know, white Cadillac convertible and, and coming in and say hello to the bad guy and all that stuff. Um, Cornette is a great exaggerator, as we know. Even the, the characters he played were so over the top, they were almost Disney cartoon-like, you know. Uh, him acting afraid of somebody who would be scuttling back, running his knees up to his chest, up and down, and waving his arms all over his place, all over the place. His eyes bugged out like uh, like a literal cartoon character. And uh, when he when he tells stories, uh, you got to take him with a grain of salt. It was, I think, it was more Vince McMahon. He taught us how. To, well, definitely taught me how to do that casual walk because I'd been walking in in Japan for years like the Road Warriors. You know, I'm stiff, I'm rugged, I'm huge, and I'm going to kick some ass, and I'm in a hurry, right? And uh, I had to take it back to I'm sauntering in. I've got all the time in the world, and screw you if you don't like it. Don't you know who I am? Kind of a thing. And Vince kind of taught me that. Uh, and Cornette said a few things, and, and he helped out a little bit, yeah. Uh, but I would say he's probably vastly blowing things out of proportion and trying to make himself look uh, 
a, a bigger part of the picture than he truly was. Now, everyone knew at that point the Razor Ramon Diesel character. Obviously, Jim Ross on TV was saying, I'm going to bring back some of your favorites, and they're kind of just, you know, they're teasing that it's Hall and Nash. Was that a lot of pressure mm-hmm. at that point? Because it's almost like you got to go out there, but they're teasing that it's Hall and Nash. Obviously, Jim Ross is playing along with the character, him turning heel, but what did you think at that point? Was yeah. it pressure-packed? You know, I don't know if it was so much pressure, because at that point, you know, at least if they had said, we've we've got somebody new or we've got, they did at one point, I think it was Jerry Lawler or somebody on, on our debut together. These guys are bigger. They're stronger, which is, well, I don't know about uh, Nash. He's seven foot tall, but I mean, Glenn diesel is like 320 pounds of pure muscle, right? Uh, he's another guy I wouldn't screw with in a fight. (laughs) I was massive (laughs) and strong and, and then I was about 280 pounds, and I was benching, like I said, about 450 and squatting close to 500. There's no way Hall was doing anywhere near that. So it was truth that, that we were bigger and stronger and younger and all that stuff. But, you know, then you look at these guys. They, they turn heel. They're the new world order of wrestling. They're taking over. Uh, they're all the big names from WWF going to, to screw WCW. That was exciting stuff. I mean, for a couple of guys to walk in and then for them to pretend that it might actually be Scott Hall and Kevin Nash coming back, it's a letdown for people. They're like, oh, God, what are you idiots doing? That's what the fans are thinking, right? And then they, the fans blamed us, which it wasn't our idea at all. I mean, I never would have gone in there and, and begged Vince, please, can I be the second Razor Ramon? No, fake Razor. I never would have asked that, right? I wanted to go on his Rick Titan. But the fans then see you as being a fake, a phony, and, and they're getting ripped off because it wasn't really Scott Hall and Kevin Nash and Boo and, and all that kind of stuff. It was set up for failure, and, uh, and I don't think Vince really cared. And the biggest deal really was is that uh, he was mad. He was angry at Scott, and he was angry at Kevin for leaving for more money and more popularity. And uh, they were big staples for him. He'd drawn a lot of money, and that's all it is for Vince is money. Over the years for him, they'd drawn him millions of dollars. And now he's like, oh, shit, these guys are gone. Um, well, I, I'm going to – their name's going to be mud by the time I'm through with them. But, like I said, he tried to do that. He tried to say, oh, I could just replace you guys. I created you. I, I'm God. I, I made you what you are. You would be nothing if it wasn't for me. And then they go to WCW and they make it a, a 10 times that or 100 times that, you know. Um, that's kind of what happened. Oh, yeah, he kind of backfired for sure. It's people like, oh, he's imitating the number one act in, in wrestling, Hall and Nash. But yeah. the thing that made it kind of interesting with a story that Hall said, and I don't know if this is true or not, I guess you're gonna, you can tell me, he gave you his authentic, real gear. Is that true at any point? Did you actually have Scott Hall's Razor Ramon outfit? No, I never met Scott Hall. And uh, Oh, okay. Uh you know, again, I had a big ego when I was in there. All the other guys did. I think you, you had to just to make it, you know. If you didn't have a big ego, then you're a humble guy, and a humble guy does not make it in the wrestling business. But sometimes, maybe, if they're already on top, I can say that The Undertaker was pretty cool and Sid was pretty cool. You know, they didn't have to pull any attitude. But they were so unique, too. No, Who could replace Sid or who could replace Undertaker? Nobody ever. Um but one of the girls, and maybe this got back to Scott, had said, well, here's another. I had a, a purple outfit, and I had a green outfit for Razor Ramon. They had made specifically to my measurements. 
And one of the girls in the back said, oh, here's an old pair of uh, trunks from Scott, and they're, they're aqua-colored, if you'd like another color. And I said, well, I'll give it a shot, but I don't think they'll fit. Sure enough, I pulled them up, and again, I was squatting close to 500 pounds at the time, and they wouldn't move past my thighs. <laughs> There's no way I could have got them on. And uh, so two things. I never met Scott, ever. And uh, the other thing is, no, this, this old outfit would have never fit me, or they're probably four sizes too small. <laughs> that is like it's funny like the way people uh you know can pop up a story or exaggerate a story and make it sound better but it is <laughs> yeah. uh, it is interesting the way that happens but what was your first impression of the you know quote unquote fake diesel or the new diesel glenn, uh, glenn kane and jacobs because we love him on this show but what was your you know first impression when you were first paired with him uh you know he's a hard worker he's very dedicated um we got along fairly well. I probably had done some things like <laughs> in Canada at the time, they didn't have a lot of size 13 shoes. They didn't have suits that would fit a guy my size and fit quite nicely. But in the U.S., they're all over the place. So one time I asked him to stop at this menswear clothing store, and, and we were trying to get to the arena as well. So we were in a bit of a time crunch, and I spent probably close to an hour, maybe even more, in there buying all this stuff because I'm so excited that I had stuff that fit. And, um, man, was he ever pissed when I got out. He wouldn't talk to me probably for the, the next day or so because I disrespected his time, you know, and that's kind of funny. Uh, and back at the time, I mean, you, you look at him, he's got that big furrowed eyebrow, you know, he's got the big, huge jaw. He's 320 pounds of pure muscle, and I'm quite sure he knew how to really fight, which I can't say for all the uh, guys that have been through WWE. They're really good at putting on a match, but if you ever got in a fight with him, it'd be over in a couple of seconds. Um, but uh, yeah, so I was probably one of those very few times I was literally afraid. I better not say anything or he's going to beat the crap out of me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, but he was a consummate professional. Uh, I, I always had a little bit of trouble memorizing long high spots. Uh, for whatever reason, my brain just didn't work all that well that way to, to be able to do 15, 20 moves in a row, and especially with uh, tag teams, you know, more than two guys in the ring, I would mess things up once in a while, you know, not very often, but then the guys would get a little cheesed off at me. Um, Glenn was a perfectionist. He was like a mathematician when it came to that. He, he always had it down perfect. And uh, But he was a good guy. We got along quite well for the most part, I think. And uh, But again, one of those things, and maybe that's the reason why I'm a coach and why I, I do public speaking, I'm kind of an open book. I like to be transparent. I like other people to be transparent with me. And uh, he just didn't like to open up a lot. And, and so sometimes it seemed a little bit tense for me, you know, but that's just people. Oh yeah. I could, uh, I could see that, but there at that era, obviously Glenn would go on to become uh, you know, a former uh, WWF champion in a different role as Kane. But you know, there were so many different guys in that era of WWF that you worked with. They were really starting mm-hmm. to hit their stride or just coming in and really, you know, started to make it big. What did you think of Steve Austin and The Rock at that point? Obviously, two of the biggest names in the history of the business. Did you ever foresee that for them while they were coming up, you know, in 96, 97? Yeah, it was really funny. And I don't talk about wrestling a lot generally these days to friends and people I know, unless I'm doing an interview like this, because it's it's been almost 20 years for me. You know, it's long over. It's kind of like... Uh, if somebody were just a friend of mine, they're saying, so what about that Razor Ramon thing? Well, I, I say, it's kind of like being the old 
captain of the high school football team to me. You know, it's just really old news and doesn't really have any effect on my life at all anymore these days. But uh, he was, you know, he was mid-card and, and maybe pushing three-quarter card with Brian Pillman as the Hollywood Blondes. He had that bad moppy blonde piece hanging over. Uh, but the thing I noticed with both him and Brian is, that, man, their high spots were amazing. Their psychology was peaks and valleys. They had those fans in the palms there. And they were masterful, you know. And uh, I know that as a worker, I never got to that level of being a master at it. Some of my matches in New Japan uh, were probably close, but still not. These these guys just inherently knew it in their gut when to do things, what to do, and and to get the maximum out of that audience, you know. And then there's also the fluke part of Jake the Snake Roberts. He went to become a preacher. Uh, Austin says something about John three sixteen. Well. You know, uh, I just say that, that uh, Austin 316 just kicked your ass or something like that. And who is to know that something kind of cheap and based on the Bible would explode with the fans and all of a sudden be the big thing for them? And then uh, I've been on the radio a lot during my early 20s and into my 30s and still do the odd bit for coaching and speaking. But you couldn't say ass. It was, it was just illegal. You know, the RTC would shut you down or give you a fine or something like that. And uh, you couldn't flip the middle finger. That was just the biggest no-no. You know, it's almost equivalent to saying dropping an F-bomb on TV. You, just, you could not do it at that time in the early 90s or 80s. And, or you'd get fired or you'd get fined a lot of money. Um reprimanded heavily, but it was just that timing where they're just starting to say like our rock station here at CG 92 and, and they're pretty cutting edge and pretty aggressive. And they just were starting to say ass on, on the radio and get away with it with the RTC. And so just at that timing too, and they say everything in wrestling is timing. Stone cold happened to say it and he got away with it. Or he had heard that it's being okayed by radio and TV and he wasn't going to get in trouble. The other part was, um, I was working, and I think it was here in Canada in Lethbridge or something. Jake the Snake was one of the bookers. And one of the other wrestlers, and I can't remember who it was, but mid-card guy, flipped the bird at the audience or the guy who was wrestling, gets in the back. Jake the Snake tears him a new one says, don't you ever let me see you flipping the bird to middle finger ever again. That's Stone Cold's gimmick. You got it. Never again. And not exactly in those words. <laughs> All the guys in the back heard it. And so Stone Cold was the only person allowed to flip a middle finger. Well, then it's his trademark. Then he's got something hardcore, dirty, nasty, uh, exciting, different, weird, ahead of the curve, all that stuff on all the other guys. And it's just the middle finger, right? So, um, yeah, it was really weird how his character developed and exploded. Although I have to say he deserved it. He was a damn hard worker. He worked out. I mean as big as he got and as muscular as he got and his neck wider than his freaking head uh, in, the, in the latter years of him wrestling there, you've got to give him all the respect for just going balls to the wall on, on his training, his, his wrestling ability, everything, man. Even his look shaved off his hair, grew in a goatee, got that split in his lip. He looked like one tough SOB, which was his gimmick, right? Um, that, yeah, that's the name, <laughs> tough SOB. Yeah, yeah, and and that's sort of how he got it. Um, sort of who uh, who else were we talking about? At the well, end, was it Kane too? The Rock. The Rock, yeah. 
So The Rock had Rocky Maivia. He was in um, local circuits as Katana before that. He had that curly, moppy hair on the top and buzzed down on the sides. And I wrestled him in Shotgun Saturday night. I actually just put something up on Facebook under Rick Titan. Uh, can, does anybody know who this guy is? Or maybe it was Instagram. And I said, that's me with the long hair on top there calling the next high spot. Uh, but this guy has now got a shaved head and a goatee and, and sort of hinted at who it might be. And uh, a lot of people couldn't figure it out because he had his, his moppy, curly, kinky hair, looked like a perm on top. And he was wearing the blue tights and the white boots. And he was bouncing around like Rick Martell from Strike Force. Remember that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, bouncing back and forth from, from foot to foot and smiling at the crowd. And, wow, that New York uh, crowd, they just chewed him up and spit him out. They were going between chants of Rocky sucks, Rocky sucks, to Razor sucks, Razor sucks. I'd call a spot in there where uh, I'd beat the crap out of them for a little bit, and they'd still say Razor sucks. And I'd say, okay, well, let's see if we can switch this then and get them cheering for him. So I gave him a spot where he'd zing, zang, boom me all over the ring and get over and end up putting me in the same arm lock I had him in and paintbrush my head instead. And as soon as he did that, a normal crowd would just pop. Like, oh, yeah, the baby face just took on the heel and did the same gimmick to him. That's so funny. He slapped him across the head, paintbrushed him a few times. This is awesome. But instead, he just went, Rocky sucks. Rocky sucks. We couldn't win in that match, man. There was nothing we could do to get a cheer or a real legit boo, except for that we just both sucked. And I thought it was one of the most horrible matches I'd ever had because of the feeling I had in there. And then I watched it actually probably just a few years ago, and it was a pretty darn good match, actually. You know, it wasn't great, but it was pretty good. Uh, funny stuff, but go ahead. No, I was going to say, that's 1996 for you, though. I mean, across the board, everything that you just said in that whole entire uh, sentence about both guys, that's 1996 in yeah. a nutshell. The middle finger goes back to what you were talking about and seeing in ECW, and then Rocky Maivia mm-hmm. being the white meat baby face, being the now, you know, quote, corny, you know, almost heelish mm-hmm. figure, that's 1996 in a nutshell. So you guys were giving yeah. the middle finger, the wrestling business was giving the middle finger to what really was, uh, you know, I guess uh, in the past, something that was kind of commonplace, mm-hmm. you know, and now it was completely changing. Yeah, well, then the anti-hero came out, and even if you look at, uh, if you were to take the time and look at some old video of Bret Hart during that time, Bret really knew, you know, Stu Hart was one of the greatest storytellers of all time. And I'd say that Bret was one of the other greatest storytellers of all time. And Bret knew that anti-heroes were getting over. You couldn't get over as a baby face anymore. Uh, the NWO proved it. Steve Austin proved it. And then Bret did his thing where he put on those little round glasses again, instead of those big shiny plastic ones he was giving to the kids, he nixed all that. He uh, faked an injury and and made it obvious to the audience. So he was just this fake, phony asshole, you know. Uh, And then he was running around in the wheelchair with Jim the Anvil Neidhart. And then he gained his team of rats together, you know, his his, uh, cronies with Jim Neidhart and and Brian Pillman. I think at the time, if he was still around, British Bulldog Owen. And they're all doing sneak attacks on people and all these dirty tricks. But then Brett was starting to get uh, cheered for being a dirty, nasty player. And then the weirdest thing, which I still to this day don't know how he pulled off, but just because he was so famous in Calgary and the Hart family was so famous in Canada in general, 
uh, he totally turned heel, but he said he hated Americans and he loved Canada. Well, all of a sudden he comes to Canada and he's touted as his hero getting cheered and asked for autographs. He goes into the States and he's Mr. Anti-American and they all hate his guts and want to spit in his face. I mean, man, that's, that's hard to do. <laughs> that's great psychology. Could be the best uh, heel of the 90s, the, uh, the, the anti-American uh, Canadian hero, Bret Hart. But I got to just ask this and talk about middle fingers uh, to the fans. I feel like I've been waiting 21 years to ask you this, and that is, I believe it was actually broadcasted on my birthday. It might have been live. Maybe it was the, the next day, September 23rd, I think, 1996, when you came out on Raw for the first time. What's going through yeah. your head as you come through the curtain? You come gliding down to the music for the first time on TV at the mm-hmm. literally, what, 59 seconds left before the show goes off the air. What is going through your head as you are strolling down that aisle? Uh, well, first of all, I thought it was pretty cool. I mean, all the lights, the, the fans, man, and, and that was my dream since I was a 15- or 16-year-old boy to do that, you know flip side of that was, ah, crap, I've got to do it in this character. Nobody's ever going to accept it. If I had come out here as Rick Titan and kick someone's ass, uh, I'd, I'd either be getting heavily booed or really cheered, you know? And so I knew that, totally knew that. Uh, but just doing the glide past all these fans and then them reaching out and trying to touch me and me pulling my arm away like, don't you touch me. Uh, it was a lot of fun. And I knew the commentators were going berserk at the table, and I could hear that, and that was sort of dream state-like. Uh, and the Razor Ramon character, I always really liked it. You know, I thought it was cool from the moment it came out. I remember Scott in those original vignettes, and he was a lot bigger and a lot stronger than Ashley. Uh, and and I just thought, man, that is a cool character. You know, if, if there are any character I could play, that would be the cool character I'd like to play. So that was kind of neat in, in that respect. But yeah, a lot of mixed emotions, like extreme from one to the other, of course. Um, but I thought I pulled it off pretty good. And maybe if it had been given a chance, and maybe if they hadn't lied and, and, or hinted that the originals were coming back out, but hey, we got someone, or, or that we do own the trademark, the copyright, and, and the costume and, and name and all that stuff. And guess what? We're putting it on a younger guy who's bigger and stronger. And then just had me be a nasty heel, you know, just cheat and and be ignorant and have good long interviews because I can speak instead of just these quick one sentence, thick accented, you know, cliched promos that they had me doing. Uh, it it might have worked. I don't know. But um, chances are probably not, but it might have. It's something that we'll never forget. I mean, living through the Monday Night Wars and living through the jump and all that stuff. But here's another question. I feel like, again, I've been waiting 21 years to ask you this question. What did Shawn Michaels think about this? Or did you know what Shawn Michaels thought about this? Because he was the champion at the time. And here are his two best friends who now have departed and have literally changed the face of the business in the competition are now getting the, you know, the homage treatment from the same company uh, do you know if Shawn yeah. Michaels was uh, in favor of this uh, character uh, revival, or was he not in favor of it? You know, it was really interesting, and I, I thought he would just treat me like a, a bag of crap when I went in there. And uh, I had heard rumors about him having a bit of an attitude problem. I know Brett and him had some heat, and I was friends with Brett, and I thought, oh, well, this guy's probably going to be a real jerk. But one day uh, afterwards, because I was, I was like – 
very rigid in my movements. I, I guess the closest thing you could compare it to is probably the Road Warriors. I wore the face paint in Japan, and that was close to 300 pounds at my peak of almost pure muscle. Uh, the way I threw a punch and just all the stuff I did was very rigid and power-based. And Scott Hall was loose and floppy and relaxed and big, big difference in, in physicality. And if anyone could take some really great credit for having taught me how to do a couple of things, uh, I would say it was him. He he says, and he was so polite about it. I, I was blown. I was shocked. I was just like the blood drained out of my face. I couldn't believe it. And he was one of my idols too when I was uh, – watching it before I broke in. He says, hey, man, uh, do you mind if I just uh, give you a little constructive uh, constructive criticism? Would that be okay? And I was like, yeah, sure, uh, of course. I was shocked, right? And uh, he goes, well, when Scott used to throw these punches, and I have a feeling he's, he taught Scott how to throw those punches too. He goes, he would wave his left hand up near the guy's face, you know, sort of measure up. And then he'd reach way back with his right arm. And you're a little bit snug there. So if you loosen it up, bring it way back from right field here and sort of measure up with your left and then connect with your right just like this. And he showed me a bunch of times until I got it. And, and then I said, thanks, man. And he says, yeah, no problem. And he walks away just calm and cool. And to me, that was, that was almost one of the peaks of my career, I have to say, because I had so much respect for him. And, uh, and he'd done it so gentlemanly, you know, uh, it, it was just really, really cool. And we never had any heat. We never had any problems. I don't know if maybe he did think less of me because of the whole takeover thing, but I actually think maybe he had some compassion where I thought, you know, I've been in, in lousy spots before in my career and this poor guy's trying to make it, uh, I'll give him a pointer here and maybe he can pull something off. You know, I think he was pretty good hearted about it. Oh, absolutely, and you guys really uh, came into it in the heart of a of a big wrestling uh, hotbed in Pennsylvania, and then you would make your way towards the New York area, and the Survivor Series 96, you guys are on pay-per-view, and you're a part of the Survivor Series match that I believe gets thrown out, so you don't technically lose at the Survivor Series, which is pretty cool, but now you're in Madison Square Garden with this established gimmick where... I don't know if you know about this, but Scott Hall, Razor Ramon, was pretty, pretty over at Madison Square Garden. So, coming down mm. that aisle, again, you feel the eyes, you feel the jeers. Are you doing your job there, or are the fans just ultimately uh, just kind of going nuts about the Razor Ramon music, the pyro, and the colors, and the look being back in front of them live at MSG? You know, I think they were actually – semi-accepting it by that point. They had seen it. They knew that I wasn't Scott Hall. Uh, I think it was maybe Jerry the King Lawler who was screaming and yelling over the mics on a, on a few different TV shows. He's bigger. He's stronger. He's younger. You know, all that stuff. And, and I think that really helped, whether he meant to or not. Uh, but here's the part that kind of peeved me. And I'd gotten this as a green guy when I first broke into the business 18, 19 years of age. where uh, And it was Bruce Hart, a couple of the other Hearts, they like to play ribs and, or they'd like to build you up and then just cut you down so you didn't get a big head about things. But uh, they, it was supposed to be something to the effect of where I grabbed a guy. Uh, I was way bigger than he was. I beat him down for a bit. I put him in the razor's edge. I was just about to either throw him down and pin him or throw him over the top rope. I can't remember at this time which it was, but but at least get one little win in there. And then all of a sudden turn around and complete surprise. Ahmed Johnson, 
Uh, I throw a couple, one punch at him, he knows sells it. I throw another one, he ducks. I spin around in a circle. He gives me an ass bump. I bounce over the top rope out of the ring, which wouldn't have been so bad. But really, they just had me go in there, do a couple schmozzy spots, which felt like, you know, 45. I'm exaggerating, of course. But it felt like 45 guys elbow to elbow in that ring where you couldn't do a thing to look good. And uh, he just grabbed me like a sack of garbage and threw me over the top rope. And I was like, yeah, well, just pay me. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so that's how that one worked. Now, as I start to wind it down a bit here, I mean, we talked about talked about the Apple lot. We talked about so many good things. But just looking back into your Japan career and obviously being in the ring with a guy like Great Muda or Shinya Hashimoto, mm-hmm. And all literally mm. the biggest names ever in the history of business, just awesome wrestlers. What was your experience like in Japan, in New Japan, and even, which is funny enough, joining on with NWO Japan at one point? Yeah, pretty ironic, isn't it? Um, I think part of it was is that I had a quite a big name in Japan already. I was the heavyweight champion in FMW for a brief period. I was tag team champion yes. with Mike Awesome over and over again. Uh, people said that we were the 90s version of the 80s Road Warriors where we, I mean, we were legit tough. Mike knew how to fight. I knew how to fight. If somebody was going to want to have a fist fight or a real wrestling match with us, we would have kicked the crap right out of them and fast. We were, we were just in that stage. And I'm not bragging or anything like that. Now I'm, uh, I'm a fair bit older and weaker. And <laughs> I, would, I would run away from a fight before I'd get in one, I think, these days. <laughs> But, uh, and there's just no part in my life. I'm pretty calm these days, but, uh, let's see here. Um, hmm, could you, could you tell me the question again? I just went on a little tangent and then kind of forgot the main purpose of the question. Who's just saying like with Hashimoto and Muda, like what was your experience? Oh, Muda. Yeah. Because so many good wrestlers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I had wrestled a lot of guys in WWE. I'd wrestled some guys in UCW, FMW. And I would say that uh, they would range from lousy to mediocre uh, where I would have to drag them through a match and I'd have to remember all the spots. They completely forgot everything. I have to whisper, practically yell in their ear for the next spots. Very, very frustrating. And um, then to points where, yeah, the guys are quite good in WWE, but they weren't as good as they thought they were. Um, the, a lot of the guys that, that I had to wrestle and, and we tagged up with, sure, they remembered everything, but there was no peaks and valleys of emotions when people were watching them. They didn't know how to work the audience very well, but they thought they were really hot. Man, Chono and Muto, they, they call Muto there, Muta here. They were geniuses. They would call a match and just sit down there and they smoked. They smoked on the, on the travel bus and they smoked in the locker rooms all the time, like chimneys. And their cardio was absolutely phenomenal. I couldn't understand it. But they'd sit there with this, this almost Japanese mafia laid back kind of cocky attitude. But they weren't cocky. They were very humble. They were real gentlemen. And they'd say, okay, here's what's going to happen. You do this, you do that. Titan, you do this, you do that. We do a, a six-man train in the corner, which means that we would shoot you know, each one of us into the corner for a clothesline on the same guy one after another and blah, 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 blah. Then the audience is going to do this. Then we're going to do that. And then the audience is going to do this. Then the heels are going to do that. And we were actually the heels. We're NWO bad guys, but we were the anti-heroes, which was working well in Japan. And it was so complicated and so ingenious that 
And these guys just had it. They had that knack. I mean, and I, I was a tiny bit starstruck because I hadn't seen Chono that much in the U.S., but I'd seen him work, and I knew that he just he was a machine out there. You just knew he knew exactly what he was doing every millisecond of time he was out there. And Muta I was a little bit of a fan of because I'd seen him wrestle as a great Muta in WCW when I was still a teenager, putting on that, that face paint and spitting mist into people's eyes and doing backflips off the top rope like nobody had ever done before. Uh, and just the way he moved around was so original. It would sort of be a really quick whiplash movement and then a stagger, 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 and then he'd face off his opponent. And very unique style. You know, nobody else has ever really duplicated it before or since. Um, Hashimoto was, was quite good. He, he came to um, probably pretty close to Mudo and Shona, but, but not quite. Uh, the only challenge with Hashimoto is that, you know, he was, he was overly stiff sometimes. It was almost like he wanted to prove to the foreigner how tough he really was. And it, it made for, you know, a pretty tough match sometimes. And I don't mean tough in the, in the way of uh, legit guy tough, but just unnecessary. You know, he just, he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to hit that hard. Uh, he didn't have to hold that tight. And one of the things that happened to me, uh, just walking by some noise here. One of the things that had happened to me in my last tour out there, second to last tour out there, was he had DDT'd me for, for his finishing move in, for the World Heavyweight Championship. And uh, I wanted to make it look good. You know, on my side, I probably jumped a little high and tried to make it look more real. But he had held on really snug, and he's kind of known for this. And when you're dropping a guy on his head, uh, you gotta you got to loosen your grip around him. You know, you can't just in a minute, a millisecond, grab on as hard as you can and drop his head right into the mat, you're going to kill a guy. And so I ended up with a concussion and, uh, and cracked my C5, C6 vertebrae doing that. And that was kind of the end of it for me. Um, so, yeah, there are little things with Hashimoto there. But, uh, man, Chono and, and Muda, <laughs> I would say they're geniuses in the ring. Just, man, they really, really had it. Two of the absolute all-time greats, and you've been in the ring with a lot of guys you could say are like all-time greats. Mike Awesome, I'm mm-hmm. a partner. He was great. I mean, Tenzan, Kojima, Nagata, Fujinami, Kensuke Sasaki. There's so many good guys you're in the ring with. Do you have a favorite match or maybe a couple favorite matches in your career? You know, out of all those guys, I don't know if Sabu really had the the American psychology uh, that some of them had because they were really, they almost, some of them had, they could walk a lap and almost do nothing like Shawn Michaels. And he'd have the crowd worked into a frenzy. I mean, I watched him and, uh, Yokozuna and I never worked with Shawn, but I would have loved to. Um, but he would run around the ring and then make Yokozuna chase him, slide into the ring, put his hands up like on his chest. Well, me and tease the girls, man, the girls are screaming like Elvis was in the building. It was crazy. <laughs> I never heard anything like it. Not even for Hogan. I mean, Hogan, it was a lot of guys cheering him and stuff. These girls were just high pitched, shrill. Your your ears would be ringing by the time you watched Sean in five minutes of the match. But he played that cutesy boy thing so well. And then he'd throw his hands over and point at Yokozuna and go, or him, kind of like that. And then they'd all go, boo. The whole arena was filled with boos, both guys and girls. And he really, really knew how to work that, you know. But um, 
as far as timing, distancing, uh, really paying attention to how I moved, to how he moved. Sabu was probably one of the best workers that I ever had the pleasure of getting in there with. And uh, as far as one of my favorite matches, which uh, wasn't a great, great match, we're wrestling some what I would call more mid-card kind of guys in Kawasaki Stadium. But, man, 50,000 people. And you run out, jump on the second rope, throw your arms up. And it's like standing in front of the biggest speaker you've ever stood in front of with the Wolfers and the Tweeters on full blast, 10 and a half, and all the fans, 60,000 of them, sorry, 50,000 of them, going right through you. And, and it just vibrated through your skin, your flesh, your bones, you're vibrating, every hair in your body is standing on end, you're peaked, your eyes are bugging out, and they could have hit you with a sledgehammer and you wouldn't have shooted, just shaken it off. It was unbelievable, man. Um, and there was also a match with Dee Dee and Owen. It was a, sur- not Survivor Series, it was I think In Your House or, or uh, something like that anyways, where we were working with them, Glenn and I, Diesel, were... Uh, working with them for the world heavyweight tag team champions, uh, championship titles. And Owen actually had put together a match similar to what Muda or Chono had put together. Davy boy was kind of there, but he didn't contribute a whole lot. Uh, Glenn, he contributed a little bit. I just kind of listened. I mean, Owen was like, you do this, he does that, you do this, he does that. Da, 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 da. And pretty soon it was just, you could see the match before you as he spoke it out. And you're like, yeah, that'll work. Yeah, that's going to peak the crowd. Yeah, that's going to drop the crowd. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. So we got out there, and we all did it to precision timing. And uh, I'd set Davey up for the uh, razor's edge, and Owen came out in perfect timing. Spin kicked me. Davey flipped over on me, even though he was the illegal man in the ring. And uh, pinned me one, two, three. I got up shocked and surprised. Like, how could that possibly happen? We should be the tag team champions right now and holding on to my chin because of Owen's spin kick selling that, and the crowd just went through the roof. Uh, that was that was one of the best just matches that I've ever had. See, and that's just awesome. And that's why when I said the fake razor to start this interview, I don't want to say that in a negative <laughs> way because you were very, very real. And like I said, it might have been a, quote, fake razor in a sport of professional wrestling, but the man behind yeah. the fake razor has done a lot, and this has been, i got to say, one of my favorite interviews of 2017. To hear how you explain everything, it's, just, it's been an absolute joy. And before we kind of wrap this thing up, you know, we usually like to throw in the, uh, you know, not the, the cliche, but, uh, you know, the, a good question to end it in. You know, it's either like a where do you see yourself in five years or with what you've done in wrestling, you know, what do you feel you've left on the business? So, Obviously, with the Razor Ramon persona now in the past and what you're doing now and moving forward, how do you kind of look back on your wrestling career and use that as motivation to kind of work into what you're doing now? You know, I look back on it as something uh, I kind of mentioned earlier as something I've done in the long past and uh, gotten a, a few pats in the back for it, had some good times, had some tougher times. But I generally look at it as something really cool that I've done in my life. Uh, it's, it really has made me who I am today. Some of the, the best times and the coolest times, I think, have given me the charisma and the ability to stand up in front of an audience today and speak 
on, on stress, on what's the opposite of being angry, what's the opposite of being aggressive, how can you find some inner peace, and really letting that sit home with uh, attendees' hearts when I'm doing public speaking. If it wasn't for wrestling, I, I don't think I'd ever be able to do that. Um, also, with the tough times I went through in it, you know, I don't think you can see the really good in life or the really spiritual or or just plain happiness from deep inside until you've seen some of the darkest, most rotten times that you might have had in your life, uh, like depression following the wrestling business, and then be able to coach and teach other people, especially in big groups, how to how to avoid that themselves and how to have a better life, you know? So, um, yeah, it's kind of all intermixed, and I just would love to see myself keep on going and that, that one day people will look at... Uh, Things like they look at looked at before as garbage wrestling, as you had put it, and it was kind of nice to hear today that that it was a real pioneer for a lot of the whole wrestling business. And even Scott Hall picking up Eric Bischoff and slamming him, uh, power bombing him, or was it Kevin Nash, one of the two, through a table that was pretty FMW, you know. Um, and also the fact that people were kind of frowning upon me and calling me the fake razor for the longest time, and still doing. You know what? It doesn't bother me that much. Uh, I'm not very attached to that, but uh, in the fact that, yeah, I've been through all these tough experiences and I'm going to share them with people and then also share with them the meditations and the philosophies and, and the different teachings that I've learned over the last 17 years to help them live their life in such a so much better way. And, and I'm living my life that way now. So I think if I were to have a legacy or leave something behind, it would be that, that change and that that extremity from one to the other and then really helping people today. That's, uh, that's absolutely phenomenal. And just like your former tag team partner, who's currently running for uh, mayor of Knox County, Tennessee, you two could possibly be the best uh, vocal duo out there right now. Cause we've had Glenn on the show a couple of times. He's become a very good friend of ours and listen to you mm-hmm. two guys talk the way that you do, and to see that you guys had to portray retreaded characters is obviously it was a travesty, but hey, that's their fault, and they'll live with that. But we want to thank you so much for coming on, and before we let you go, please share with the listeners of the Two-Man Power Trip of Wrestling where they can find anything and everything in the world of Rick Bogner. Well, um, looking up something, part of the reason why I kept the, the name Rick Titan is because after I finished wrestling, I, I wrote a book called Wrestling with Consciousness. So it's sort of how to get out of the the, the wrestling, the tough parts of life and, and psychology and into consciousness, into awareness, into a level of inner peace and happiness. And I've got a, an ebook on my website, rictitan.com. That's, I think, only seven bucks. Uh, I think they'll find it a good read. And uh, the, oh, they've got to email me, too, to make sure I get that to them. It's, for some reason, not an automatic thing off the website. So uh, rickTitan.com, rick at rickTitan.com. And Facebook, I've got a business page and a personal page. I think I might be filled up to 5,000 people on my personal page, but just say hi. And, and if you have any questions or if you'd like any information on getting de-stressed or how to get fired up and self-motivated, again, please send me uh, a quick email or a shout on social media. Absolutely. Please, fans and listeners, do that because uh, I know that they know us and what we can do on this show, and we didn't even scratch the freaking surface 
But we appreciate all the time that you spent tonight. We'd love to have you back on down the road because, like I said, uh, there is a lot more that we could dive into. But we appreciate all this time tonight, and uh, the door is open anytime you want to come back. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, guys. It's been a blast. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.